On behalf of Newsweek and the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues, welcome to A Mightier Tomorrow. I'm Jesse Edwards. We take you now to the 72nd floor at One World Trade Center in New York City to Newsweek headquarters, where we've invited eight students to debate each other in front of a live audience on topics ranging from affirmative action to climate change, AI in the workplace, and immigration. Here to kick off our event is Nancy Cooper, Global Editor-in-Chief at Newsweek. Thank you. Uh, Welcome to the first, and not the last, Newsweek Noddle celebration of student debate. I'm delighted that you've joined us, and I'm proud to say that Newsweek is the first national media publication to consistently cover student debate. I want to explain why we've made this commitment. At Newsweek, we believe that good faith debate is in the public interest, and we welcome diverse views and voices to the search for common ground. That's in our mission statement, and it's something we work to achieve every day. I don't think it's possible to overstate the importance of healthy healthy debate in our own lives and in the life of the nation. When we citizens can't tolerate the discomfort of disagreement, when we can't speak to or listen to people outside our own tribes, civil society suffers. Democracy is weakened. What the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues does that is so valuable is give students the chance to develop the skills that are critical in sustaining rigorous, respectful, and honest give and take about things that matter. The students here today have demonstrated their passion for the exchange of ideas. They see and they remind us of the transformative power of debate and the the crucial role it plays in encouraging those around us to seek common ground. We all have a stake in encouraging the next generation of critical thinkers. It's a great pleasure for us at Newsweek to meet these impressive young leaders, and we look forward to amplifying their voices to our audience around the world. Thank you again for joining us this evening and for sharing our mission. Please welcome to the stage, speaking tonight on behalf of our students from the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues, Mariani from Denver, Colorado. Hi, I'm Mariani, and on behalf of all the students here tonight, I just wanted to take a few seconds to thank Newsweek, the Denver Urban Debate League, the Silicon Valley Urban Debate League, the Washington DC Urban Debate League, and the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues for this opportunity, the space to share our ideas and the platform to amplify our voices. This has been a completely unique and amazing, tremendous, once in a lifetime experience and from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Please welcome to the stage the host of the Crystal Knight Show and our host for this evening's series of student debates, Crystal Knight. Good evening. As Jesse just stated, my name is Crystal Knight and I host a self-titled show on the Newsweek platform called The Crystal Knight Show where I talk about politics and pop culture. And I think I've shared with a few people, I wish that I knew about this program when I was in high school because each week I get on national TV and debate political pundits. And let me just say, there's very little decorum. (laughs) We go back and forth about news of the day. We also talk about things that are just happening in the world. And so it's really inspiring that there are high school students who are actively learning the art of debate and the engagement of debate. And so I'm really excited to be here and host you tonight. Um, So let's give it a round of applause just for the program. 
So what I'll do right now is explain how this program will run. Each debate will take approximately 15 minutes, and it will include a speech where each debater builds their case called a constructive. Their opponent will have an opportunity to ask questions, in that case, in the cross-examination. And finally, each speaker will have a final rebuttal. So now I'd like to welcome up the first team from Denver, Colorado, Mariani and Isabella. And for this first debate, I'll go through each particular um, topic just so we're familiar with the format. The first topic is climate optimism. And Mariani will begin with an affirmative constructive argument. The former president of Costa Rica, Oscar Arias, said, we can make a commitment on climate change with the hope that eventually we will be able to show the world that what ultimately needs to be done can be done. Because I agree with this point of view, the mindset we should champion with regards to climate change is optimism. In this debate, my opponent has stipulated that climate change is real, that climate change is caused by music ac human actions, and that climate change can be addressed by urgent policies. What we are debating today is what sort of mindset our generation should have when it comes to today's environment. I am in favor of climate optimism. In this speech, I will describe how climate optimism is the way forward to true solutions. We often hear fatalistic news stories about our Earth. I mean, if you were to search up climate change right now, it would be articles upon articles about how we're destined to a horrific ending with our environment. We fall into a cycle of doom scrolling. Being optimistic about the environment's current state is easier said than done. Climate optimism is the belief that we can still take meaningful action to address climate change and create a more sustainable future for ourselves and future generations. Policymakers from Harvard have argued, quote, climate optimism isn't about denying what we can see with our own eyes or ignoring our grief for what we've lost. It's understanding that we know how to prevent things from getting worse and that we're making progress. Climate optimism is important because it can motivate individuals, communities, and governments to take action towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions and transitioning to a more sustainable way of living. With the positive mindset, people are more likely to explore new ideas and approaches, collaborate with people and organizations, and build resilience in the face of climate-related challenges. I want to also share some real-world examples. Here are some countries that have used climate optimism to make real policy changes. First is Costa Rica. Costa Rica is always at high risk of natural disaster exposure. Even though the odds are not in its favor, it is still a pioneering tropical country when it comes to climate change. Costa Rica began implementing environmentally sustainable policies 50 years ago. They promoted ecotourism and designed a comprehensive plan to implement a green economy. Almost 100% of Costa Rica electricity is from renewable sources, with approximately 65% from hydroelectricity. Costa Rica's commitment is countrywide, optimistic, and deeply embedded in the country's educational infrastructure. Second is Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> it's the first country with a legally binding carbon neutrality target. The Swedish parliament passed a climate act that targets zero net greenhouse gas emissions by the year of 2045. The government's 2019 plan targets 132 actions, such as investing in private renewable energy projects to turn them in to be easier and cheaper. Through their Royal Institution of Technology, Sweden runs the Viable Cities program, which includes 20 Swedish cities to support carbon neutrality. Sweden's key approach is optimistic and is heavily dependent on public transportation. Without the support of the public, it is impossible to implement new and challenging policies successfully. 
And finally, Morocco. Morocco is an African country that is also embracing climate optimism. Morocco has lifted all subsidies on diesel, gasoline, and heavy fuel oil to encourage more efficient use of energy in order to transition to to a green economy. The Moroccans are also conserving their aquifers to preserve fresh water for future generations. My examples are from South, South America, Europe, and Africa. Both the global north and the global south can take aggressive and optimistic actions to combat climate change. This proves that climate optimism does not only work in a personal sense, but in a global sense, too. If we all thought and acted this progressively, imagine the possibilities of our world, not just in helping the climate, but other issues we the people deal with on the daily. Now we will hear a cross-examination from Isabella. So my first question is, what is climate optimism? Climate optimism is the belief that we can and that we should still take meaningful action to address climate change and create a more sustainable future for ourselves and future generations. It's looking for good when things are not good to help us make decisions appropriately. Thank you. Uh, Let's see. The countries you mentioned are already extremely optimistic as proven through their policies. So how do we convince the rest of the world that isn't as optimistic to pursue that mindset? Well, to start to convince the rest of the world, we have to start with the youngins, our colleagues, and even (laughs) younger. We are the future. Those freshmen coming into our high school that we're low-key, high-key scared of are the future. (laughs) Raising these kids and teens with an optimistic mindset is an easy way to ensure that when they're older and some become leaders of this world, this climate optimism comes into play. I mean, all those examples I gave you of Costa Rica, Sweden, and Morocco are all examples of the government taking optimistic action. When we have new kings, queens, and presidents, etc., they will be the ones to have to take that action. Thank you. Thank you. Now we'll, now we'll hear a negative constructive argument from Isabella. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day, and then I want you to act. Greta Thunberg. In our modern society, one of the bi- biggest political discussions is climate change and what action should be taken to prevent it. Today, we are here to discuss the mindset our generation should champion with regard to climate change. I am suggesting we look at it using a pessimistic mindset. I will be using two main ideas to support this. First, the fact we are already deep in the crisis of climate change. And second, the benefits of pessimism. First, the reality. We are deep in the consequences of climate change. I know we can all think of a few examples from the last year or two of the climate being out of control. More tropical storms, warmer weather, more snow. I'm sure everyone remembers the snowstorm from a few years ago in Texas. There was mass hysteria and death. A maybe lesser known example comes from mine and my opponent's city of Denver, Colorado, where in 2021, we went 232 days without snow. This is tied for first place in consecutive days of non-measurable snowfall with 1888. In fact, the top five places are all from the late 1800s, which was in the middle of the Industrial Revolution in Colorado. One article about, the stu- about a study from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change states, the IPCC doesn't pander to any climate denialism, stating that it is unequivocal that human activity is responsible for the crisis we face. 
Many changes due to past and future greenhouse gas emissions are irreversible for centuries to millennia. The authors write, that means there's no way to avoid some of the consequences brought on by uncontrolled environmental abuse over the last couple hundred years. In other words, science is telling us we can't avoid the consequences. There's barely a hopeful future to look forward to, which is why we need to turn to a pessimistic mindset. Most people think pessimism is this self-fulfilling prophecy of terror, but in reality, pessimism is just better preparation. Elizabeth Scott, an expert in psychology, describes how pessimistic people are better prepared for tough times and may avoid risks that optimistic thinkers may have ignored. By thinking the worst is going to happen, you are able to create a plan of action. It's better to plan for the worst and have it not happen than to have the worst happen without a plan. We are seeing the faults of optimistic thinking in climate change today. Optimistic thinking has led to our current climate change crisis, which I gave examples of earlier on. Now it is time to face the reality. There is no time to stop and smell the roses when thinking about climate change because the roses are already dead. I am now open for cross-examination. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now we will hear a cross-examination from Mariani. All right. So my first question is, could you define what climate optimism is? Yeah. I mean, wait. What's it called? <laughs> pessimism. Yeah. What is climate pessimism? Yes, climate pessimism. Uh, climate pessimism is the belief that it is too late to stop climate change which is why I mentioned terrible and extreme climate events from the last few years to show that in our current situation, it is already too late. And for my second question is, how do we drill this idea of climate pessimism into the general public? We have to present them the facts. And the fact is that the planet is dying at a faster rate than we can stop. The only option now is to try and slow it. And I'm sure the general public, if presented with the data, combined with their own personal experiences on Earth, will see that. For my last question, if it is too late, are you suggesting that we don't do anything about climate change? No, uh, I think we do need to do something about climate change, but I'm saying we need to be realistic about it. We can't go la, 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 and frolic through the flowers thinking we can pass a few policies and stop climate change. Action addressing climate change can't stop the crisis or the consequences we have and will experience. It needs to, and instead needs to focus on slowing it down and preparing for the worst. Thank you for your answers. <laughs> and now we will hear an affirmative rebuttal from Mariani. For my rebuttal, I'd like to emphasize the following points. First, climate optimism is the preferred policy for effective action. My examples of Costa Rica, Sweden, and Morocco demonstrate that a positive can-do mindset, especially among leaders in the, of the country, can result in real policy action. Second, climate pessimism, from what I can tell, might potentially inhibit action. If the public, or worse, leadership believes that it really is too late, then the wheels of the government might grind to a halt. No policy action would be taken. That is why, in my opinion, leadership is so key. Leaders in Costa Rica implemented a comprehensive green economy. Leaders in Sweden implemented a city's vision program. Leaders in Morocco are protecting the coastline. Leaders must have hope. Pessimism is antithetical when it comes to leadership. Third, panic is a bad idea. It is only through calm, cool, and collected thoughtful action that we can get through this existential crisis. I'm not denying that climate change is likely the worst global problem we face, 
What I am arguing is that it is hard to get 8 billion people on the same page. We have different economies, different religions, different political system. In order to take corrective action, we have to collaborate. I therefore ask you to side with the affirmative side, the side of hope and the side of optimism. Thank you. And now we will hear a negative rebuttal from Isabella. In this speech, I will be comparing mine and my opponent's points throughout this debate. I would like to first mention how there are likely hundreds of policies like the ones my opponent mentioned in her first speech. However, there is no way to prove all these policies were made in pursuit of an optimistic mindset. The reality is that many of these policies were likely made out of fear because fear fuels people to action. My second point is the reality of the situation. I have chosen to uphold this idea because we can throw around hypotheticals all we want, but the reality is the consequences of climate change are already here and we can't reverse them. I discussed the lack of snow in Denver and the excess of snow in Texas, but this is also expanding to mass fires and densely populated areas. At the end of 2021, Boulder experienced a fire that destroyed a thousand homes. This is again, only one example of climate catastrophe. We can't put a Band-Aid on the wound that is climate change, expecting it to heal with a bit of time. We can only hope to slow it down because the rats don't run the city. We do. <laughs> and finally, in the sake of emphasizing realism and transparency, I will note the best way to address climate change is to do a bit of both climate pessimism and climate optimism. But to start, I highly recommend we pursue pessimism as a jumping off point to adjust climate change. Thank you. Please give a final round of applause to Mariani and Isabella, the Denver, Colorado team. I have not seen anything uh, as highly developmental and effective as debate. Oh, okay, okay, thank you. Next question. This competition involves a new domain cyberspace. What is your solvency? Like, how will you work to solve the problem? Natal's mission is to prepare the next generation to lead and succeed. That all youth graduate from high school as engaged civic leaders, all of whom have an expanded college and career opportunity. The activity of debate is fairly expensive. And so the students who compete in our programs, in our competitions, many attend schools in underserved communities, and no other after-school activity combines academic achievement, competition, and soft skills as effectively as debate. It helps students do things that they wouldn't normally ask for, and it teaches them how to do that. It'll teach you how to speak, it'll teach you how to argue, it'll teach you about your own emotions, you know, it'll teach you control. I feel like if I didn't do debate, I don't think I would have been on this path. NOTL partners with urban debate leagues in 22 cities across the country. Collectively, they serve more than 7,000 middle and high school students. My first year in this country, I was having a hard time. And then the bay with the Spanish division, like it was like a family. I think they should teach debate in schools. I think it should be like a thing that everyone goes through just because of the thinking skills that it teaches. Having to put yourself round after round as the center of the room helped me build um, a lot of confidence. 
Debate addresses tremendous gap in the education landscape around training students in verbal communication and civic engagement. Exercising their voice and having difference of opinion and being comfortable with that. I am inspired every day by the collaboration of our leagues. And most importantly, I am inspired by the students who bring our mission to life. They represent the promise of a tomorrow that's led by well-informed, highly engaged, and brilliant young leaders. It'll definitely be something that will change you and shape you. It brought out my voice. It brought out me. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Rhonda Haynes, Executive Director of the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues. Good evening, good evening, and thank you. It is a great pleasure for me to be here this evening. Uh, I admit it's been a highlight that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. It's hard to believe that it has been about 13 months um, since we started thinking about the concept of this partnership. And here we are, gathered in this iconic, historic, and breathtaking space, sharing a commitment to a mightier tomorrow. What does that mean, really? In theory, it means that Noddle and Newsweek share a commitment to constructive dialogue. Believing that words have power, it also means that we work hard at fostering debate, providing platforms for worlds, idea, ideology, ideologies, and politics to clash while encouraging collaboration and object objectivity and problem solving. The fact that Newsweek celebrates its 90-year history as Noddle approaches 20 years in the making very much represents the power of longevity as well as the promise of young perspective in debate. The voices and perspectives in this room are no different. So we're very excite excited to jointly present this event. Now, for friends of Newsweek and Noddle alike, you are all in, as you can see, as you have seen, for a real treat here tonight. The students who showed up to debate do not disappoint. I can attest to that, and now you get to attest to that as well. Uh, in fact, they bring a certain energy and inspiration that fuels the work at Noddle and, is new at, and now at Newsweek as well. You too get to be encouraged that our future is in very good hands despite the state of current affairs. Thank you all for reminding me of that and the rest of us of that in this room. The students featured this evening represent highly informed, well-prepared critical thinkers who are more than capable of tackling even the most complex of policy issues. Finally, and most importantly, to the students um, who represent debate in Denver, Silicon Valley, in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you recall, but six months ago, you debated at Mountain State University in Colorado, at Stanford University in California, and uh, had the privilege of crashing the halls of the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., respectively, with iResolve. Now here you are, you're in New York City, commanding this audience here at Newsweek with literally all of Manhattan as your backdrop. It doesn't get very much better than that, and I'd like to say that's not bad. Congratulations. Uh, personally and professionally, I fully expect that your longer-term trajectory to be just as steep. Congratulations on all of your hard work, and I hope that you feel proud about where you are right now. Um, this experience builds, I know, upon your tremendous 
experiences that you've been able to have through debate. And because of debate, objectively speaking, you will always be among the most prepared, the most objective, most skilled communicators and critical thinking, thinkers in the room, always. Have fun tonight, this event is for you, not the other way around, everyone here is for you. Um, and I really wanna say that you inspire us all and we very much look forward to what, hearing what you have to say about the issues that are most important to you. Thank you all for being here and thank you. Thank you. I'd like to welcome our second debate team up from Washington, D.C., Noemi and Haven. Their topic for tonight will be affirmative action. And first, we will hear Noemi begin her affirmative constructive argument, and the debate will proceed like the debate before. Affirmative action has been in effect in the United States for over 50 years and was upheld by the Supreme Court in the University of California versus Bakke ruling, decided in 1978. Now, that 45-year-old ruling is being challenged by two Supreme Court cases set to be decided in June. The immediate question in these cases is whether the Supreme Court should overrule a 2003 case that reiterated that race may play a, a limited role in college admissions. First, let's define affirmative action. Oxford says it's the practice or policy of favoring individuals belonging to groups regarded as disadvantaged or subject to discrimination. Typically, it has been used in college admissions to award additional points to racial minorities, especially to African-American students. I'm here to explain why this is an imperative policy to protect diversity in higher education and to address racism. First of all, affirmative action allows universities to take into account the obstacles that students faced in their childhood due to their race. This includes the impacts of historical discrimination, such as lower income, living in neighborhoods with more crime and drug use, and difficulty with access to proper food and health care, just to name a few. It would also include the results of present-day discrimination, which can range from bullying and harassment to being turned down from professional opportunities due to racist biases. Affirmative action is the best way we've found to quote-unquote cancel out the racism that racial minorities may experience in their childhood, which prevents them from having as many opportunities as their white counterparts. Second of all, it helps start to break the cycle of racism as a whole in American society. Of course, it's only one step, and we still have to take many other actions in order to solve the causes and impacts of racism, but this is a good step in the right direction. Affirmative action allows more racial minorities, especially African Americans, to achieve higher education. This, in turn, allows them to get better jobs and into more positions of power, including important places in politics. Not only does this allow for more racially conscious policies and systems, but it also empowers the next generation of students of color to act. Continu continuing affirmative action is a step that we can take right now to start breaking the cycle of oppression and racism in America. Lastly, we've been talking a lot about how affirmative action positively impacts youth of color, but we've neglected to talk about the rest of the population. The truth is that making diversity commonplace in higher education and jobs benefits everybody. Sure, it'll put white students at a superficial disadvantage for college admissions, but that's the price to pay for an overall better society. A UChicago article explains that students learn more in diverse groups and employees are more productive. Diversity in experience, culture, and thought is all conducive to better collaboration and problem solving, which are imperative aspects of any good society. Not to mention that a lack of workplace diversity promotes behavior such as people of color whitening their resume, as one Times article states. This reinforces the completely incorrect idea that non-white people 
should have to quote unquote act white or tone down their blackness in order to be employable. The very idea of needing to whiten one's experiences is toxic, yet that pressure would increase in a world without affirmative action. Continuing affirmative action, while imperfect, is necessary to continue to increase the number of people of color working in positions of power. It is our best hope to combat the idea that ideal candidates are white. Affirmative action was put in place to start breaking the cycle of racism. It succeeded in part, and the work is far from over, so we should continue it. Thank you, and I'm ready for cross-ex. Okay, my first question is, how does... How does affirmative action account for all races and diverse backgrounds? Sure. So thank you for your question. Um, affirmative action can't consider every single aspect of a candidate's background. In fact, I don't think the college admissions realistically can take every aspect into account, considering that, for example, um, Harvard received 57,000 applications this year. And however, I do think that affirmative action does account for multiple historically underrepresented groups, and so it does the best possible given the circumstances. To follow up, if the Supreme Court does rule it out, how would college admissions be affected? So first of all, colleges would be significantly less diverse. Because colleges wouldn't be able to take race into account, and because of all the reasons that I stated beforehand, um, many black students wouldn't have the same opportunities as the white students to be admitted, and therefore white uh, colleges would be overwhelmingly white. Um, I also think that it would lead to a world with white people who are, or college-educated white people who don't know how to work in a, in a diverse society because they got their education in a mostly white environment. Um, and I also think it would end up in a world with less college-educated minorities, which, as I stated before, is not good for anybody. Okay, my last question is, if the, who would you, what would you say to someone who is against affirmative action who sees it as a disadvantage of applying to college? So I wouldn't state it as a disadvantage. I would say it as leveling the playing field. The goal of affirmative action is to provide an advantage for people who are inherently disadvantaged because of their race, which, like, like I said, has historical effects and present-day effects. Um, and so really it's just leveling the playing field with rising up those who um, are currently disadvantaged and that puts them at the same level with the same opportunities as those who already have all the opportunities and have the advantage in our society. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be doing my first negative constructive. To start, affirmative action has been very helpful in college admissions and has a lot of benefits. The main reason why affirmative action became a thing was because minorities being underrepresented in major colleges and not having an equal opportunity for admissions into college. But the solution to this problem is wrong. While the idea may be correct, the way it's being handled is wrong. There are several issues, but one of the main ones is affirmative action only considers race, but not the diverse backgrounds behind the race of the applicant. People in different areas and have different types of income also need to be considered and not just skin color. Being a black person in a state like Colorado is so much more different than being a black person in, a, in New York City. A person that lives in an urban area such as New York might have more connections and income versus someone who is in a rural area of Colorado without as many resources as you would find in an urban area. With affirmative action, it only accounts for ethnicity, not your actual background. 
One definition of racism is the belief that groups of humans possess different behavioral traits corresponding to inherited attributes that can be divided based on the superiority of one race over another. So this interpretation of affirmative action could also be considered as a racist solution to a racist problem. We should want people to be looked at more as a person than just a number in the system. And as the current cases in front of the United States Supreme Court argue, it prefers someone who is Latino American over someone who is Asian American only because that specific university needs more diversity. That itself becomes a discriminatory solution because it's no longer about diversity and helping those in need, but instead how do we how we look at people by the color of the skin. Instead, we should look more at people as a person so that minorities are no longer underrepresented and all have an equal opportunity for education no matter what resources that they have. The goal of affirmative action was equality and emissions, but instead it did the opposite of its goal. If we keep some aspects of affirmative action and not the entire system, then we can help the underrepresented minorities. Some aspects like financial aid, employee and management development, and employee support programs should all stay. These programs are all good aspects of affirmative action and help out everyone equally. One of the questions asked is, if affirmative action was removed, how would financial aid look? Many are unsure about whether affirmative action is good or not, but making a compromise in the middle will not only satisfy the students, but then people will have an equal chance. But some aspects, like targeted recruitment, isn't the best for trying to increase diversity for two reasons. One, two people who have the same resume will pick the color of skin that they prefer and never reverses the goal of affirmative action. Two, it also sounds racist. The definition I gave earlier fits, uh, it fits targeted recruitment. People have many different perspectives on the topic of affirmative action and what the solutions to them should be. For these reasons, argue we should eliminate the interest quotas and diversity magnifiers that exist in the current affirmative action policies while maintaining some of the support programs for students after they are admitted and employees after they are hired. This will help with discrimination while eliminating some of the biggest objections to affirmative action the current lawsuits raise. Asking more questions about who they are as a person versus only as another applicant out of thousands will give more people an equal chance. I'm not open for cross. All right, so my first question is, um, in a world with your reformed affirmative action, how would you ensure racial diversity in higher education? Sure, thank you. Uh, racial diversity is still the goal, but we're trying to main equality also. So while it might be something hard to achieve with the right plan, it is something that we could do, and it's something that can happen. I think we shouldn't just get rid of it, but we should think about if the route we are currently on is working and what changes we can make for improvement. And one thing that's been said often to me as I've grown up is um, there's always room for improvement. So why not take the opportunity now? All right. Um, and how else are we supposed to ensure diversity and start working against racism in the education system without taking race into account? Thank you. Um, I think we should look more towards people as a person and not just a number in a system. Things like where they are located, what high school they came from, who are their parents, how did they get here, are all questions we can ask that help with diversity without taking into account only race. Because while race does play a part, slowly looking at only causes one race to be put higher than the other. Mm -hmm. We should ask more questions instead of just doing the standardized, what's your uh, SAT or ACT score? What's your GPA and extracurriculars? All right, and then can you explain how affirmative action implies that one race is superior to another, aka why is it racist, as you stated? Yes, um, as a debater, we know that perception and framing matters. It then becomes harder to persuade others to adopt your policy because that policy seems contradictory and counterintuitive. Um, 
An example is like let's combat racism or racism. Oh, we need policy that persuade others to invest in equity. All right. Thank you. All right, I'm going, I'm going to now do my affirmative uh, rebuttal speech. So I want to bring an unfortunately very common situation to your attention. A black kid lives in a food desert in a neighborhood with an underfunded public school that doesn't provide many extracurriculars, SAT prep, or help for school. How are even the best students there expected to get into top colleges? As I said, this is very common because historically marginalized groups are too often disproportionately disadvantaged in these ways. This is why we need to tackle racism head on. The only way to do that is to take race into account. And since my opponent doesn't, his reformed affirmative action becomes just help all the people who have a disadvantage. However, we need to separate those things. The point of affirmative action is to address racism, not every inequality and disadvantage. And in order to address racism, we need to take race into account. Any other attempt through other factors won't end up actually addressing racism. The necessity to address racism brings up another fault in my opponent's argument. Financial aid should also take race into account, and it's not a replacement for affirmative action. Students of color need not only better chances to get into college, they also need the financial ability to afford the best colleges. The truth is, the college you go to has a huge impact on your estimate income. The average career salaries of graduates from the top 10 colleges in the U.S. are 108% higher than those with degrees from within the top 100. Earlier, I talked about affirmative action helping break the cycle of racism, and this evidence suggests that admission to top colleges is a big factor in higher income, which is the first step to breaking that cycle. Affirmative action is necessary in order to counteract historical and present-day discrimination that affects people of color's ability to be admitted into top colleges. Getting into top colleges leads to higher income, which allows people to leave or improve bad neighborhoods and get rid of financial or other systemic barriers to care. And this is what allows us to start breaking the cycle of racism. Lastly, this will create diversity in higher education and jobs, which helps get rid of biases and create more productive and collaborative environment. Affirmative action was created to help historically marginalized groups have more opportunities to succeed in college and society, and we need it, and we need it to keep doing so. Thank you. I'll now be doing the first negative rebuttal. Everyone can agree, affirmative action isn't perfect. My opponent agrees, and if it could be improved, then we should do it. Help for underrepresented minorities and communities is necessary, but not everything works. The current status quo of affirmative action has a lot of issues and needs to be improved. We could do this through the alternative of affirmative action that I'm advocating for where we reform it. This is the best way because it takes away discrimination and improves diversity and helps underrepresented minorities more in college admissions. We shouldn't look at people on paper as a number, but instead look specifically for who they are. College essays are one way that college admissions are looking more into applicants about who they are as a person, but it isn't being weighted as heavily as your GPA or SAT. Anyone in the audience could write the best college essay anyone has ever seen, and against someone with a 4.2 unweighted GPA and a 1500 SAT score, the person with the scores are a lot more likely to get in. The question isn't how do we stop racism in college admissions, but instead is how do we give students an equal chance? The goal isn't to put some higher than others, because then the issue become more about students becoming discouraged from trying to achieve higher education. We are met with a giant problem that will shape the future of college admissions, even for me, since I'm a junior who will be applying next year. So taking a risk on the future of America's college admission system isn't what we need right now, but instead something that is concrete and fits all. 
keeping some programs and removing others, looking more into the background of a person, asking more key questions when applying. These are all examples of how to make affirmative action better. Imagine applying to your dream college and they ask you, what was a turning point in your life that made you go to where you are now? It would make you feel more welcome to that college like they actually care about you. Comparing the drawbacks of keeping affirmative action now the way it is now, there would be more of an issue with people of different races getting put above others. Minorities in privileged communities are more likely to get in versus uh, those who are low income and having connections could give you a clear advantage. But if someone asks me what are some of the drawbacks of this advocacy, the only thing I could say is that admissions will become more competitive because there will be more of an equal chance. But with competition comes innovation and I think changing the way a front of action works is best and thank you for your time. All right, let's give the Washington DC team one more round of applause. No Amy and Haven, thank you so much. Join us next week for the second half of our main event, A Mightier Tomorrow, live from Newsweek headquarters in New York City. A Mightier Tomorrow is a partnership between Newsweek and the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues with the goal of amplifying student voices, recognizing the importance of student debate, and celebrating the power of civil discourse.